Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Ryan S., Dave V., and Andy J. We've got a new guest on the show today. Kevin Keough has joined us. Kevin is president and CEO of Ever Gold Corp., a gold exploration-focused company with projects in British Columbia and also with an exploration project in Nevada, United States. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol EVER and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol E-V-G-U-F. Kevin, thanks for coming on the program. How are things? Well, things are good here, uh, Andrew. It's looking like spring outside, so it's always a hopeful time of the year. Yes, indeed. Well, hopefully the good stuff can start coming here in light of what's happened over the last year and a half or so. Yeah, well, we stay positive and focus on the work and don't worry too much about the other stuff. Well, Kevin, you're new to our audience. Why don't you start off here with maybe your background and experience in the junior natural resource business? Sure. I'm actually a geologist by training, uh, originally out of Queens way back when. Did a, studied some engineering as well, but uh, consider myself really uh, a geologist by training, though I spent a lot of years uh, bird-dogging deals in the investment banking world. Uh, these were companies active in uh, high technology, especially in the dot-com era through the 90s. So um, a lot of, lot of experience just chasing deals, raising money. I also advised uh, some senior ministers in previous Canadian governments. And, uh, of course, at the beginning of my career, I worked for Anglo-American and De Beers out in Africa. Around about 2004, when the industry, the resource industry, really started to reactivate after that really difficult period it went through. You might recall, Andrew, during the dot-com era, um, there was very little interest in, in mineral stocks or junior resource stocks. All the interest was on hot technology plays. And um, that changed after the dot-com meltdown in 2001, too. And, you know, this with the growth of China, the resource space really started to reactivate about 2004. And through the course of my work through the 90s, I'd come to know a number of people that were active in uh, the mineral resource sector. And so I went back to them because I'd always wanted to get back into the industry after getting off into investment banking. And um, in 2004, we started by uh, resurrecting a shell company. Um, and that was my first uh, standalone resource play. It was a company called Newstar. And um, that was on the TSXB uh, subsequently merged that with another company called CanStar. Candor became CanStar. Uh, that led to San Anton Resources, which was active uh, on the Toronto Stock Exchange as well as in Mexico. And after that, um, I did a fairly significant play on the TSX PC Gold, which had the old Pickle Crow gold mine in northwestern Ontario. And um, after that, uh, did quite a bit of work in Southeast Asia with Noble Resources. And uh, in recent years, um, it's a bit convoluted, but basically I was advising and running uh, a private company called New Chris Minerals uh, back in the 2014 era. Um, and we had developed the uh, Saddle Prospect up in northwestern British Columbia. It was a really attractive geochemical anomaly, uh, but you couldn't interest anyone in it. So I worked myself out of a job. I told them to just park the company until the industry came back and the interest came back. And uh, we did that late in 2014. 
and I then set up uh, Evergold Corp, and uh, that was in 2015. Uh, Evergold Corp then got parked for about 18 months because the gold markets really started to come back strongly early in 2016. And I went back to the people I'd worked with at Newcris, and I suggested we take the company public. And uh, so I set up a company called GT Gold Corp. Uh, I named it, I structured the deal, did all of it, pulled the team together, and was the founding CEO. And uh, we took that public late, late in 2016. Um, the next year in 2017, we delivered the massive uh, saddle, saddle north and south copper gold discoveries up in northwestern BC, which um, Newmont is just busy buying out right now for a tune of something like $400 million. Uh, so that's been a major, huge success. As, there's more than 20 million ounces of gold equivalent in that discovery. And um, I then left GT in June 2018 and went back to Evergold and reactivated Evergold and took it public late in 2019. So uh, as I'm speaking to you, we're just about to embark on our second phase of drilling on our two flagship properties, and they are both in northwestern BC. Appreciate the uh, background on that. And you uh, remind me of GT Gold. We followed that story for a time back mm -hmm. during that 2017, really, is what I recall. And what was the end result there? Maybe you can just highlight that for the audience. You left at some point there. I believe there was someone else that came in, and then there was some issues at the board management level, and then oh, Newmont yeah. came along just shortly thereafter. Maybe you can just go through that. Yeah, actually, uh, I didn't want to leave GT Gold. It was not my desire to. Um, both the Saddle North and Saddle South discoveries were delivered in 2017, but uh, the country, uh, the company rather, was. Uh, really guided closely, one might say guided too closely by the chairman of the company. And um, there were changes there that didn't, in my view, help the company's prospects. So I left uh, involuntarily, uh, having set up the, the 2018 drill program, went back to Evergold. Um, in the meantime, uh, in 2018, one of the previous, uh, the fellow who replaced me, Steve Burlton, as CEO, a very good guy, he actually had brought in uh, Newmont at that time, Andrew. So Newmont came in under Steve's watch. They took a position in the company. They obviously saw the potential there. And really, uh, Steve wasn't there for too long when they brought in a another group of former South African uh, people, uh, ex-Barrick, that um, it was a feeling that they were, you know, of the caliber required to really advance the company through the pre-development stages. And they are, and they were uh, certainly qualified to do that. Um, I think GT Gold lost an opportunity over the last couple of years since 2018 to uh, basically sell the company out for much more than it's currently going. And what I mean by that is um, Saddle, the discovery, it's huge. Uh, there are two components to it. Uh, there's a very high-grade gold system associated with it at Saddle South, and there's this massive porphyry deposit at Saddle North. Now, over the last two and a half years, um, the market has been very keen on high grade. It's always more keen on high grade. If you can deliver high grade numbers uh, over good intercept lengths, the market will always value you more highly than if you're a bulk tonnage play. Um, bulk tonnage I like because, of course, you can build mines that are long lasting and real cash cows once you've spent a couple of billion dollars to, to get them set up. But the market will value high-grade gold silver plays over the bulk tonnage uh, plays all the time. And so with the backing, uh, GT had the backing of Newmont. It was in there for a 15% position. 
Um, they were sort of riding along. I think several other major institutional investors came in, uh, K2 among them. Uh, they clearly had issues with Ashwath Mara, the chairman. All of that's in the public record at the current time. They had serious issues, and it was rather embarrassing to actually see the that uh, laundry laid out, you know, as it has been this year. Um, but I think K2 was frustrated with the fact that the company's stock was languishing. And if GT Gold had spent several million of the large amount of dollars it, it had and continues to have on the Saddle South component, in addition to the work they were doing in Saddle North, they would have been able to generate quite a number probably of high-grade uh, intercepts. And that would have really woken the market up, I think, and got the stock much higher than, than where it ended up. So in any event, there was frustration on the part of key shareholders. There was a dispute that everybody knows about. And I think it must have been decided internally that um, you know it was in the best immediate interests of everyone to sell the company to to Newmont. I uh, just wish they'd been able to do it for twice the price, and I think they could have if they had focused some significant resources on the high-grade potential there at Saddle South. Yeah, it's interesting, the set of events and, of course, getting everybody to get along, too, and this mm -hmm. under a circumstance where you have a fantastic deposit like that, it's uh, a little bit sad and, and also silly sometimes to mm -hmm. see some of these things. But mm -hmm. you go back to a point about the uh, the market also, the rotation, like you mentioned, the tech bubble 2001-ish. Interesting setup we have today before us where there appears to be a commodity rotation that's starting to occur. It, it looks yeah. like very, very similar to uh, that type of scenario and that time frame here. We're just coming out of COVID, still really, really highly valued tech companies, but there is a little bit of life starting to flow into the natural resource sector. And we've seen that with a lot of commodity prices going up here. Yeah, that's very true, Andrew. And if you look even at uh, boring old oil, of course, which... In fact, I've invested in recently. Um, those stocks have performed very strongly over the course of the last year, you know, from their COVID lows and probably will continue to go up significantly further than where they are based on where they were historically. Interestingly enough, though, back in the dot-com era leading up to the collapse in 2001, at the time there wasn't a lot of recognition of the role that resource stocks could play in the high tech era. Uh, you know, mining was considered old school and to some, to some degree it still is, but it was considered old school. People didn't really realize that, you know, you need those commodities, you need some of those esoteric uh, metals, um, the rare earths and all of these other things for so many of the high tech plays. Um, so I think the contrast between the lead up to 2001 and even the immediate aftermath, I think much of the resource, the uptick in the resource sector in the in the first 10 years of the current era um, had to do with the growth of China and the perception of all that increased demand. I think recently some of the really serious gains in some of the metals like lithium, rare earths, copper even, you know, um, have come because people realize now that those particular boring old metals and some of these metals they've never heard of are fundamental to the tech sector. So it's actually breathed a new, new life into mining, frankly. It's rather exciting. So... Yep, and I tell people, a lot of people, even in terms of gold and silver, for example, um, a lot of people don't realize the role that even gold and silver play in technology, right? How much gold and how much silver is used in circuits, for example. Um, a lot of people might think of gold as primarily an investment vehicle, but it does have an industrial role even in the high-tech sector, and certainly that's long been true of silver. It's funny how that happens, how this gets refreshed from time to time. And mm -hmm. the fact that, uh, you know, everything we use comes from the ground, it gets mined or it gets grown, and the stuff that gets grown uses components that have been mined. 
it's an interesting set of circumstances here where actually the importance is growing and people are starting to become aware of it. So I think we have a lot of tailwinds that are set up for a longer term uh, commodity cycle here. Mm-hmm. Well, talk just a bit here, Kevin, about how you see the gold market. You know, the gold price matters most of the time for sentiment reasons, although, as you know, good progress and discovery can really offset even poor market conditions with regard to the gold price. Where do you think we are in this gold price cycle, and how do you think investors should position at this point? You know, Andrew, I don't really pretend to understand or to forecast where gold prices are going to go. I've over the years seen so many people make their predictions, the ups and the downs. Uh, I do, as a general rule, I believe the outlook looks good, and I personally have always liked gold and precious metals. It's just something about them. I do believe they're real value and I feel good owning gold. I mean, physical gold, uh, that's undeniable. But what I'm telling you is really told from the perspective of the really junior early stage exploration uh, view, right? Um, my, I, I've been involved in the business quite a long time now, and I recall when gold was, you know, $650. And if you had a significant discovery as a penny stock at $650 per ounce gold, your stock would still go to several dollars on that discovery. So in the junior, I'm in the really early stage junior space, It's really more about the discovery than it is about the overall market sentiment. Um, It is true that having strong market sentiment assists your efforts to raise money and is kind of essential for that purpose. But I'm saying that if you do have money, even if market sentiment is sour, if you do have money and you do achieve a discovery that is recognized as one that could become a mine, as defined by you know that uh, uh, whatever mix you happen to have of grade and width, then you will get a very strong capital uh, uptick, at least stock price uptick, on that discovery regardless. Now, here we are, gold is 1750 or whatever it is currently today. Sentiment is positive, strongly positive, has been for a while. Uh, you've got all kinds of newcomers to the sector. You've got to treat some of those newcomers with some suspicion because usually there are Johnny-come-latelys who are primarily in it to make money, which is great, but it doesn't mean they really fundamentally know a whole lot about the business. And you can certainly get your share of shysters who uh, are flogging moose pasture. So um, it's, I like people to stay. I, I advise people to stay with teams that have done it before, um, who've been in the business a long time, understand it, have proven they can make discoveries of merit. And... Um, have also proven that they have a a sense of the markets and they know how to position the company and market it effectively, you know, so that if they they do discover something of merit, the market will respond. Well said, Kevin. I think that uh, aligns pretty well with a lot of my views on it as well. And we certainly have to sift through a lot of stuff here to find the jewels out there. I think that's a good transition into Evergold. Give us just a high level, one to two minute overview of the company and the projects here. Well, we search for metals, obviously, and our particular interest is is gold and silver. Uh, but copper is certainly a strong interest as well, Andrew. Um, we, My approach to these junior companies is to try to set up brand new companies, not to use shells, uh, with the exception of, of GT Gold. Um, and the reason is um, you don't want to be imbur- or burdened with baggage from the past. If you can avoid it, it's just another challenge to overcome. So we set up Evergold Clean to focus on two or three of these key metals. Uh, we also decide to focus on British Columbia um, because we know the geology, especially of northwestern BC. Um, we have a cluster of properties, but we're also rather focused at the current time on just two of our Canadian properties, that is Snowball and Golden Line, 
because we call those our flagships. And we're also very focused on, so we've got really a three legs to our stool, the recently acquired Rockland property in Nevada. Um, all three are kind of similar in terms of deposit styles, and all three are similar in the sense that we believe they can deliver discoveries of merit. So we're not hunting around, we're not just doing exploration for the sake of exploration. Uh, we want to achieve discoveries that could become a mine. And you do need to differentiate that way. There are a lot of people in our business who just do exploration because it's their career and that's all they really are concerned about. They may not be very good at raising money or marketing, but they, they like the geology. Um, we are kind of investor biased rather than exploration biased. We know the exploration, but we also understand how difficult it is to raise money and the need to really generate a return that um, your shareholders can really do well on. And so our objective with these flagship properties of ours is to basically provide capital gains opportunities. We're not promising anybody that we ourselves will ever operate a mine. That's not our goal. If we find something like Saddle, we'll sell it to somebody like a Newmont. Uh, but our goal is to achieve discoveries of merit and to give our shareholders capital gains opportunities that they hopefully will take advantage of. Talk just a little bit about the short company history here. Who was part of the original setup pre-listing? And then also Charlie Grieg was also uh, early on with you as well in getting this set up. Oh, yeah. And Charlie is still very much part of the picture. Uh, Charlie actually is continuing as VP exploration of uh, GT until it, the formal acquisition by Newmont takes effect, which should be within the next month, I would think. So uh, Charlie and I were really the founding shareholders of Evergold. Um, we, and really the core, Charlie is really the core of our technical team. Many of our personnel uh, on the exploration side are employees directly of C.J. Gregg and Associates, which is uh, Charlie's consulting business. But in terms of shareholders, uh, the key shareholders are Charlie, myself, and um, Alex Walcott, who is a well-known geophysicist uh, that does work uh, in the States as well as Canada. So we set the company up uh, I was set it up actually at the close of 2015. Charlie came in, we wrote, vended in. He vended in just for stock, and that's worth emphasizing. Uh, there were no formal work commitments, no cash payments. Uh, Charlie vended these properties entirely for stock, which shows you some degree of confidence in the outlook. And uh, that occurred early in 2016. And that summer, uh, summer 20, actually the next summer, summer 2017, we did a private placement into the company. And participating in that private placement were some of the early shareholders in GT. Uh, companies or funds such as Plethora of Precious Metals out of Holland and a number of others. So we seeded the company. Um, with a mixed bag of retail and selectively to certain funds, and then basically managed to do a minimal amount of work while GT was continuing forward, but have um, really lit the fuse under the company post IPO. And on that IPO, uh, in in toward the close of 2019, uh, we had a a pretty broad array. Um, I, one of the reasons I, I chose to go the IPO route rather than the RTO, reverse takeover route, that we used for GT was because um, you get you end up with a much more diverse group of shareholders if you do go the IPO route. So we came public with an IPO, a proper IPO, and you're going to laugh, but it was actually the biggest, it was actually the largest, I should say, uh, IPO in the mining space. 
in 2019. Now that's not saying much because it was a terrible year for IPOs, but ours actually at three and a half million, if you can believe it, was the largest uh, on either the TSX or TSXB. I'm not talking about other run-of-the-mill financings. I'm just talking about clear IP, clean IPOs, right? Um, last year, 2020, of course, everything changed. There was an explosion of them. Uh, but we got public at $3.5 million. We ended up with a very diverse group of shareholders, about 350 of them, versus just about 50 on GT Gold's uh, RTO go public transaction. So um, we've had a very nice liquid little company since the get-go, pretty tight, reasonably tight capital structure, but liquid enough that people can buy and sell it relatively easily. And that's been part of my strategy as well. And of course, the key, the key now is to, and has been to really deliver out of these properties, um, something of real value that will get the stock price up, and over time, hold it there. And Kevin, can you just talk a little bit more about the capital structure here as far as the shares that are outstanding now? You talked about some of the major shareholders on the roster. So maybe just shares out and then also the cash on hand at this point. Yeah, at the minute, we've got roughly about $7.5 million cash in hand. Uh, that's net of our recent outlays on... Um, for the financing itself. You know, we raised, uh, closed on February 23rd, um, an $8 million bot deal, which um, was, we were approached by Canaccord on that. And I was very happy to see it. Um, so at the minute, in terms of basic shares encompassing that last financing, which was at 20 cents, uh, ironically, that's pretty much, the, it is the same price that we went public at uh, some years ago, Andrew. Um, in any event, we've got about 73.5 million shares outstanding at the current time. And fully diluted, it's quite a bit more than that. It's about 113 million. We have quite a few warrants out, about 37 million approximately. And the share price, though, has responded very nicely. I think we're around 36 cents now, so we've come up significantly. Our market cap, you know, at the current time is north of $20 million, and we are well cashed up. So the in terms of the breakout, you know, how what the mix is, we are sitting somewhere at the minute around 31% institutional ownership. And that includes um, uh, funds such as uh, Sprott out of Toronto, Middlefield, Dennis De Silva, um, also... Uh, uh, Craig Porter with Maple Leaf Funds. Uh, we've got at least a couple of Netherlands-based funds in there, and probably a few I'm not aware of, but those that I am aware of, it's about 31% institutional at the current time. Insiders hold about 11%, and all the rest is pretty much retail. What's your ownership of the shares at this point, and what price do you own your shares? Right now, I own, uh, and I'll include, I, I have actually about two and a half million shares. I put a quarter million dollars of my own money into the company cash, and I put that money in at 10 cents originally. I had to dispel a debt for some of that, but currently encompassing my options as well. I'd actually have to double check the number, but I believe it's about probably $3 million encompassing my actual stock ownership plus the options. So my money went in at $0.10. Cents. It didn't go in at $0.05. Cents. Um, we thought 10 was reasonable. It was my cash that really seeded the company. Charlie seeded it with his properties. And actually, recently, I put in another $120,000. That was just before Christmas at $0.20, cents, exercising options. And I'll certainly do more of that going forward. That sounds good, Kevin. I appreciate you sharing that with us. You know, with your guys' cash here, when do you see needing to raise more capital? It sounds like you guys are plenty happy to get through the rest of this year. But what do you have on that front as far as, uh, you know, maybe people that are looking for a capital raise in the future? 
Yeah, I mean, there's, people are always legitimately concerned about dilution. And what I can say, Andrew, is the facts are that we're a capital pool company, right? You, we, we will never, we have not, we will never probably generate revenues. So comes back to what I was saying before. Anybody looking at these early stage explorers like this should not be looking for dividends. They should not be looking for uh, any kind of income from these early stage companies, Not certainly not from Evergold. What they should be looking for are those capital gains opportunities because that's what we're really good at is the exploration. And we're not miners. We don't have that expertise. But we've shown that we can find or make the discoveries that become deposits and that the big boys want. So, you know, as far as dilution, the way it works is we raise enough money to execute the programs that we've carefully thought out that we believe can add value in terms of discovering something of merit and getting us some capital gains opportunities. So we raise enough uh, from time to time to finance each phase of the exploration cycle. Longer term, of course, the way it works, you must anticipate having to raise more money, even if you're successful with the deployment of the first phase capital. Um, that in turn will lead to additional needs for capital because generally you've only financed what you require. You what you believe you need to achieve the first phase of the work or the first discovery of merit. After that, there's going to be a whole lot of drilling and other types of engineering and studies, etc., to advance the development of whatever you happen to find. So people should be clear that these little companies are going to periodically have to raise money. But the goal is I'm not saying it always works out this way, but the goal is, of course, if you can achieve the discoveries of merit early enough in the cycle, early enough in the life of the company, then the stock price will appreciate and you'll be able to raise the additional money that you know you're going to need at considerably higher prices, which therefore, of course, really reduces the dilution. So, there's certainly a number of moving pieces to this early exploration game, but it comes back as well to what I said before, that if you start the company with a fairly tight capital structure, not hundreds of millions of shares out, but really with a score, two score million shares out, and if you can achieve the discoveries early on, you can prevent the dilution or the inordinate dilution that will come uh, because you know you're going to have to raise more money. With your capital here, do you guys think that'll, with your programs planned for this year, do you guys uh, see this capital at least carrying you through the end of the year? Well, what I'd say, Andrew, is I hope that the capital is not sufficient. <laughs> I will say that. I'll give you an example, at uh, a good example with GT Gold, okay? With GT Gold... We set out uh, the first summer of drilling, 2017. We had about $3 million in the till, and we planned the first phase of work. And the goal was to achieve a discovery of merit in the first phase of work that would get the stock price up midsummer and allow us to finance a second phase that year. But we didn't have the money to finance that second phase. Um, so we got out the door uh, toward the end of July 2017. We delivered the discovery of the Saddle South deposit and um, uh, what's now a deposit. It was just a discovery at the time. Um, that actually allowed us, the stock responded strongly and the timing was good. You know, it was late July and there was still time to get the fi financing, another financing in place. Uh, which allowed us to continue to execute, and we completed the phase two um, early by early October that year. And it was really in the second phase that we delivered the huge uh, Saddle North discovery with one of our last holes, actually, that season. Um, but the point is that we had a staged 
uh, our strategy was a staged progression of the exploration. And um, you can never be totally sure how much money in advance you're going to need, but it worked out because of the timing. Uh, with Evergold, last summer was a bit different. Uh, we envisaged a similar progression of phased work, and we financed our initial phase of work. We obviously hoped to achieve a discovery that would have um, really lit the market on fire, and the timing hopefully would have been ideal for closing a financing. Unfortunately, we got uh, both our Snowball and Golden Line properties there. We had not drilled either of them before, and we did encounter some legitimate challenges that we couldn't have otherwise anticipated. You know, some people view these sorts of things as just excuses, but to give your listeners some some uh, sense, uh, if you've never drilled a property before, it's always hard to know, for example, what your drilling meterage rates are really going to be because that depends on the weather. For example, if it's a, a helicopter-supported program, you've got to be able to move your crews. You've got to be able to put take core off the mountain. You've got to be able to move the drills in a timely way. And um, the rock quality, whether it's broken up or weathered or really competent, can greatly affect your the rate at which the drillers can get the meters in. So last summer at uh, Saddle, for example, not Saddle, but Snowball, at Snowball, we obviously achieved a discovery right on the highest levels of the mountain, but it was tough going because... Uh, the rock was very incompetent. Our drill meterage rates were half what they would be, uh, what we anticipated they would be. And the weather, uh, if any of your listeners have ever been to South Africa and Table Mountain, you know, at Cape Town, they've got a phenomena there where the the rain or the winds come roaring in off the ocean, go up the Table Mountain, and a cloud condenses in the lee of the mountain. So even on a sunny day, you've got the so-called devil's blanket in the lee of Table Mountain. It's kind of an odd phenomena. As luck would have it, we actually had the same phenomena pretty much at uh, Pyramid Peak on our snowball project where the winds came up, rise up to high elevation. There's a glacier right behind the drill pad and it would condense. So fog was a big issue. And if fog is there, the guys won't fly the choppers, and you can't move crews, and this, that, and the other thing. So uh, our guys were marooned up there often for, actually for up to 36 hours of a stretch. They couldn't get down. They lived in their survival shack up there. So these, the the, the wet local weather phenomena, the really crummy ground right on top up there, uh, greatly affected our productivity. That, in turn, has a knock-on effect uh, in terms of when you can deliver your drill results. And of course, that then affects your financing. So I like to tell people in the case of Evergold last summer, we hope to get two phases of work. We only got one. And if we go back to the GT Gold analogy, we really blew GT Gold and the saddle discovery open in the second phase of drilling the first summer. We didn't get that last year. We didn't get a second phase. So really what we're hoping to do this summer, what we're planning to do, not hoping to do, what we're going to do this summer, Andrew, is execute the second phase of work that we couldn't get to last year. We almost got to it, uh, but not quite. And that's where things could get and should get very exciting. Yeah, that makes sense. And off of a good result there, if there's good appreciation in the share price, it probably makes sense, of course, to to use that to finance next phases, et cetera, of work, which is, I think, what you alluded to here. And going mm-hmm. off of July 2020 high, sentiment decrease in the gold sector across the board, and just as a result of not being able to deliver all of those progress results that you had intended, I think that's why you've seen what we've seen here at the share price and what has attributed to that. Well, let's talk a little bit more here about Golden Lion, a little more detail of those plans here for the remainder of this year. Just talk about that program that I think this is the main focus for the company, at least the first focus. 
Actually, uh, you know, people do ask us, Andrew, you know, which of these properties is your priority? And uh, as I said, we when we did our IPO late in 2019, uh, it was somewhat unusual. We came to market with two technical reports. Most companies, when they go public, uh, will have a single technical report, i.e. one flagship property. We had two, both Snowball and Golden Line, because we really couldn't decide uh, on the technical merits which was superior. Really, they're Golden Line is a much larger property than Snowball, but you know you don't need a lot of terrain to hide a major deposit. And what's always been lovely about Snowball is uh, we have a high-grade system untouched, whereas over at Golden Line, we have a high-grade system that has been touched, ironically, by Newmont way back in the year, given what's happened at GT, you know, back in the early 80s, Newmont actually did some drilling on Golden Line. And the work we did last summer basically confirmed that there's a big gold zone in place at Golden Line. Um, by big, I mean it's over 800 meters in length along its drilled length. It's more than 150 meters in true and true cross uh, uh, trend width. Um, it, it has the hallmarks of being perhaps somewhat akin to the deposit that Benchmark Metals has been drilling to the south of us directly along trend in the same rocks, although it's about 25 kilometers south, it is along trend in the same rocks. Uh, Benchmark is is probably going to have a new mine, a very large one at some point, and Sprott and those people have put a lot of money in that. We have the uh, indications that we could have something very similar unfolding at Golden Line. Um, the excitement at Golden Line for what's coming this summer is simply this. Uh, we did a lot of geophysics at Golden Line last summer and early in the fall after the drilling wrapped up. And um, we've actually started the, the geophysics well before drilling, but you know, it takes time to unfold the programs and to really zero in on what you hope to be the sweet spots. You're always trying to find the sweet spots on these particular projects. And it was not until about September 9th or 10th that we did sufficient detail, closing in the lines, you know, closing up the spacing along the lines to basically generate a really uh, compelling looking target. This is an IP anomaly and generally uh, it, it's called induced polarization, but um, generally IP is useful for showing you where solicitation, which is commonly associated with uh, mineralization, or alternatively, uh, disseminated sulfides are in the rocks. So both silicification and sulfides are commonly associated with the the goodies, the real goodies, the, the gold and the silver. Uh, we basically have been able to demonstrate that we've got a very sweet looking target just below where all the drilling has occurred to date at Golden Line. So it appears that all the drilling has just been scratching the top on what could be a very exciting uh, near-term story. I mean, so we have a very crisp target there that we're going to drill right out the gate this summer with phase two. Uh, if in better circumstances, we would have gotten to that last year, but we just couldn't, so it's coming. And there's more going on at Golden Line than this, this target I'm just talking to you about, this nearby, uh, some really compelling looking geochemistry as well. But um, sh investors in our case won't have to wait long. We're not asking anybody to wait years for results. We, we have crisp results, crisp targets that they can see in the presentations on the website that I've talked about that we can hit with the drill and that'll occur right out the gates this summer at Golden Line. I might add, uh, Andrew, just back to Snowball for a second, that 
the excitement at Snowball is that if anybody cares to go to our website and look at the location of our first ever drill pad there, they will see that it was right on top of Pyramid Peak. Like, I mean, uh, that's about as spectacular a pad location as anybody had in the province last year. The reason we put the pad up top there, it is quite extreme terrain, was um, we had done a lot of sampling of the the rocks and the talus finds over Pyramid Peak at Snowball. And it's a very strong gold and silver in soils anomaly. But we could not see because of the intense weathering of the rock. It was just like powder, a lot of it. You know, you couldn't tell where the, what the orientation of the structures were that might be hosting those values. So we put a pad on right on top close right in the center of the anomaly basically that we could drill 360 degrees from and that's kind of unusual most pads won't let you drill 360 from but we spent more to do it and um, tested in all directions as luck would as luck would have it we we hit we delivered very high grades uh, why the market wasn't excited last summer was because the grades were narrow that is, the intercepts were narrow. But uh, just after drilling wrapped up last summer, we, again, if this had been a phase two, we would have got there last year, but we we think we figured it out, i.e. We, we've been basically drilling it the wrong way, kind of out of necessity. We went down slope from last year's drill pads, and we actually trenched in early September a very high grade arsino pyrite rich uh, gold and silver bearing uh, mineralization, which is what this year's target. We think, in other words, that we found the sweet spot that we didn't get to last year at Snowball. And it's just where Pyramid Peak meets, meets the ridge right next to it. That's the target for the, the immediate target we should hit there because we can see the high-grade material in outcrop there. So that's going to get exciting quickly. And if we demonstrate that we have good widths to go with the high grades we've already delivered, then we'll also with confidence be able to say that, look where we are on top of this mountain. We've got the entire mountain below us, and these systems run deep. So um, that could unfold as an exciting high-grade story uh, very quickly, and that could happen this summer. So a little different complexion between Snowball and Golden Line. You know, the one is pure high-grade, that's Snowball. Golden Line could be both bulk tonnage like Benchmark has, or high-grade, or both. We just don't know yet. Yeah, that's great. You've got two things going here, and it's purely early stage, and uh, the scale yet to be seen. It's good to see that there's two things that's possibly to come out uh, later this year. Lastly, can you just talk about, um, you guys had picked up Rockland, Nevada. Maybe just talk about that, and I assume that's something that's probably planned uh, 2022. Yes, that's right. We won't drill Rockland, and the way, the reason we picked it up, some people ask whether you know, your picking up of that property uh, indicates a lack of confidence in Snowball or Golden Line, and that's not the case. Um, we didn't actually even go looking for Rockland. Uh, Charlie Gregg, uh, who we were talking about before, Charlie was down there in November working for another client, and uh, one of our directors, Darwin Green, with High Gold, he runs High Gold, um, Darwin knew the vendor of the Rockland property, used to ski with them actually, and uh, liked the property. It wasn't a fit for high gold, but uh, Darwin mentioned it to Charlie, and Charlie went by and had a look at it when he was down there in November. And funny enough, uh, Andrew, of course, it's been kind of difficult if you've got a property to sell uh, or to option in Nevada in some of the other states because a lot of the early stage interest in those plays, a lot of the early money comes out of Canada for those plays. And people haven't been able to travel 
because of the virus thing. So it's been kind of harder to get for some of these vendors' attention. Charlie was down there, saw it, went, had a look at it, liked it. And uh, the reason, and then we decided to take it on, uh, I was a little skeptical at first. I, I don't like to have too many things on the go. Uh, in my view, we do not now. But uh, when I looked at it, I must say it had a lot of compelling, was compelling arguments in favor of it. And what's compelling is um, on the west side of the Rockland property, you've got a very high-grade pass producer, tiny pass producer, you know, from the cowboy days, 1870 to 1930 or so. They produced maybe 50,000 ounces from a uh, just extracting very high-grade gold and silver from these veins, a vein system at the Rockland Mine on the west side of the property. On the east side of the property, about two miles to the east, uh, you don't see anything on surface there in contrast to the west side. At Rockland East, um, it's only the alteration on the surface that might suggest there's some good values deeper down. And BHP, another major, actually did some drilling at Rockland East, and they intercepted a broad, a broad low-grade envelope with very strong trace elements, arsenic, uh, antimony, and some of the other trace elements that we typically look for when we're looking for gold, or gold especially. They basically... Uh, intercepted an epithermal system similar to the west side of the property, but down about 150 meters or so. And it's big. It's actually similar to the Golden Line property in scale. Where they drilled it, it's like 800 meters in length. And it's got widths, true widths of over 200 meters. And within that broad envelope, which uh, has actually been modeled with leapfrog within it, You've definitely got high-grade structures that carry genuine high grades, you know, 10, 20, 30 grams of gold, a lot of silver. It appears that what we have at Rockland East is, a, is the entire intact epithermal system. And we think it could be similar to the kind of um, setup you have at Midas and Sleeper and some of the other really well-known high-grade past producers in Nevada and elsewhere where you tend to get a halo on top of trace elements and below it for several hundred meters you'll typically have a boiling zone where the really high-grade gold gets deposited right depending on the temperature and pressure conditions etc and so that's never been drilled below this below this halo has never been drilled so that's our key target there. I might add that over at the old mine on the west side, we'd think that what they were mining there was the lower levels of the system. Uh, again, at Rockland East, we think it's been down-dropped and preserved. So that's quite exciting if we can get ourselves drilled into a high-grade Midas style there, the market would really light a fire under the stock, but it won't happen until next year. I would mention, though, Andrew, we're actually going to be down in Nevada working on the property next month. So, yeah. Well, that's good. And there's another piece there to it, too, and interesting setup on that one as well. Mm -hmm. So with these, as you, you know, the focus zeroes in here as results come out, do you guys fully intend to keep these three projects in-house here? Or as you focus in on one or the other as results come, uh, do you guys look to do any earn-in or JV or sell-off, maybe non-core projects in the future? I, I mean, you can never say with certainty about the longer term, but I can tell you with certainty, Andrew, that um, my interest is not in joint venturing or you know, Evergold is not a prospect generator such like. I don't even like that model. It's kind of an excuse for having management overseeing a lot of properties, but them not actually doing much, right? Um, I, I'm, you just can't possibly make a success of these juniors. This is the odd exception to that. I remember uh, one company, Goldex, AUEX, of course, they were a prospect generator and they, they discovered the front or had the frontier. I think it's what became the frontier 
uh, Long Canyon deposit in Nevada there. Uh, that worked out favorably for them, but, but we are a very focused little company. We want to do the work and add the value ourselves. And if, obviously, if we get really successful on one, at least one of these properties, um, and it's clear that that, that discovery is, is really superior to anything else we've got going, we will definitely then turn all our guns on it. Uh, at the minute, it's just too early to say. Maybe by the end of the summer, we'll have a, a, we should have a much better understanding as to, for example, between Snowball and Golden Line, which of these properties is really superior. Uh, maybe, though, we'll get lucky and really hit it on both. Then we will continue to work both. Let's just see what unfolds. But we're sure not going to be uh, optioning them off. Yeah, that'd be a great pipeline if that was the case. So we'll mm -hmm. see what happens there. And yeah, interesting points there, especially your view on the prospect generator side too. Hard to sort those ones out. There's a few good ones, but it is difficult. Yeah, well, if you saw, Andrew, the only other thing I'd say, if if people really understood the kind of an like today with many of these pro properties, you can be completely overwhelmed by the amount of data associated with them. Like, uh, especially at the junior end of the business, you it's not we're, we're not barracks or Newmonts or anything like that, where you've got all kinds of human resources to throw at these projects. You've got a limited pool of expertise and time to devote. And it's simply impossible to understand and properly evaluate and determine the proper next steps on too many properties. You've got to focus, otherwise you'll never accomplish anything on any of them. So, yeah, you, you do need to fo force yourself to be focused, and that's what we really try to do. Kevin, and I know you talked about it here, we've talked about it just in the discussion here a little bit, but maybe just come back here as we wrap up, talk about the broad company strategy, and what do you see really as the exit strategy for you and the company to realize value for shareholders? Well, the strategy is, and, and the objective is pretty straightforward. We aim to dis deliver discoveries of merit, and by merit, I mean discoveries that we understand in the very early going could become mines. And usually that means that you're looking at some combination of widths and grades that you understand and the market understands have the, have the makings of a potential mining situation. We understood that, for example, at Saddle, with the Saddle South discovery in the first phase, because we had long intercepts, you know, of, of really, of multiple veins, of high-grade veins, really nice-looking mineralization. We knew right away that we had the scale potential. And today, you do need that scale potential. It's no good to have a single high-grade, narrow little vein. You know, it's got to be a system that gives you scale potential. So uh, that's our strategy is really to deliver those sorts of discoveries. Um, the way that our investors are going to make money is through capital gains. If we're successful with the unfolding of our programs, uh, people should be very clear about that. Uh, as I said before, don't look to us for dividends. Don't look to us for, you know, a multi-year effort to necessarily develop and deliver a mine. Our goal is within the next year to two years to develop, to deliver discovery or two and to advance those to the point where somebody would be seriously interested in taking you out. So that's really the for those of our shareholders who are happy with the volatility and can stomach the volatility of these junior companies, if they really like and understand what we've delivered, they'll be happy probably to ride through the ups and the downs. For those who can't stomach the volatility, if we deliver uh, significant capital gains opportunities, they should look to exit themselves from the story and capture a capital gain while it presents itself because uh, the fact is, as we know, Andrew, today, like we have no control over, over how high these stocks go with the instant on Reddit crowd and some of the others. You can be assured these stocks will run really strong and 
you can also be sure they're probably going to give a lot of it back pretty quickly too. So take your profits when you can. Um, I would mention, just because it is instructive, again, going back to the GT Gold experience the first summer. So here we were in 2017. We delivered the Discovery Saddle South. The stock ran to, I think it was almost $3 over the next few weeks on that discovery and it ran there from about 45 cents we started you know there was a bit of uh, a bit of appreciation before the drilling ever started as there always is andrew and and people should maybe take advantage of that too it's happening now with evergold usually there's some appreciation as the marketing machine builds awareness of uh, what your plans are then uh, when we had our big run with GT, we went far above the 45 cents, but we actually ended up, despite knowing that we had a discovery of merit on our hands, we actually went right back to where we were at 45 cents some months later. It was as if everything we had achieved that summer didn't mean anything, and people were questioning. They say, you know, what's wrong? This is a this is a dog of a stock. This is not real whatever you know um but we see what happened uh, we were happy to ride through it the ups and the downs uh now of course nuance take them out at 400 million dollars or something um so just be ex expect people should expect that kind of volatility and it shouldn't necessarily cause them to doubt the merit of what's been discovered good points kevin well for potential investors who are listening, um, market cap of the company is around 26 million Canadian here, Kevin. What would you say to them at this stage and at current price levels? Why should they consider Evergold? Well, because we have a team that's done it before. Uh, we're solid people. We know how to market. We know how to raise money. And we know how to deliver discoveries of merit. And we have done that. And moreover, we're really well positioned right now. Again, People should do their homework and understand a little bit about the seasonality and the cyclicity of these junior stocks, Andrew. Um, the fact is that if you are a company like Evergold, uh, focused largely on the northern climes, with the exception of Rockland, which will change the picture going forward, but usually there's a strong seasonal element to it. So. Uh, early in the new year, the uh, investors, the market more broadly, typically puts the previous year behind it. And it starts to look toward the next field season, which in northern BC, for example, is between the months of June and early October. So the market starts to anticipate what's coming. The, the past is the past. And you usually hit your lows uh, late in the year, early in the new year, and then it starts to trick, come back up the market in anticipation of what's to come. That's exactly what's happening with Evergold now. Uh, I think currently at 36 cents, um, we're still very well positioned. We could certainly appreciate considerably more before the drilling starts, and the drilling will start in June. So, um, I would say now's the time to put in some money. If we do get appreciation beyond these levels, ahead of drilling, it's always advisable for people to recapture their uh, capital outlays. Just get, get your capital outlay back and let the rest ride because uh, the fact is we can't guarantee uh, that we're going to deliver the results we hope to deliver. We can't guarantee that. But the reason you should let some ride is that if we do deliver, and this has been true of every junior resource company I've ever been involved with, if we deliver results that are exciting, the stock will run very quickly to, to a multiple of where it currently sits. And it could be a very big multiple. So you have to have a strategy for investing in the early stage plays. You put in some, you capture your capital when you can, let the rest ride. And if we get those big spikes that um, we all hope to get, 
and what we hope to deliver, you should take your profits because, and don't assume it's going to hang up there because there's nothing that management can do to keep those stocks, to keep your stock price up there once you get up there. Uh, it's just there are too many players in the market, too much hot money, and that's just the way it is. But uh, ultimately, if we deliver a discovery of merit, we are going to end up probably selling out at some future point in time at a price that's much higher than where we currently are sitting, despite any volatility between here and then. Some good suggestions on the timing and the strategy. I think that uh, the audience should take some note of that for some of their strategies that they're using. And Kevin, the best way for investors to reach out to you and the company here? Well, they can always contact me directly. Uh, we don't have any middlemen handling IR in this company, Andrew, so they can call me directly at my 613-622-1916 number, or they can send me an email simply to firstname.lastname at evergoldcorp.ca, and so it's kevin.keouch at evergoldcorp.ca. Ca. Certainly, the, I'd encourage them, Andrew, to uh, check out the website, evergoldcorp.ca. There's, if, you, if they look at the media section, there's a lot of interviews. There's quite a bit on YouTube these days as well. You know, I've done quite a number of interviews, and uh, but I'm always happy to speak with people personally. Well, Kevin, thanks for the time to come on and talk about Evergold to us and introduce the company. Best of luck. Well, thanks, Andrew. It's always an exciting time of the year. This is when uh, the rubber meets the road, so to speak.